the importance of differentiation in B2B marketing. Welcome back to a fresh episode of Business Growth Show. I'm your host, Sam Dunning. And if you want to grab my weekday B2B marketing and SEO tips, emails, a free playbooks, podcasts, or if you want to apply to work with us, head over to samdunning.org. So joining me today, I've got Pep Laya. Pep is the CEO over at Winter. He's chairman at CXL and Spiro. We're going to be diving into why your B2B company needs to stand out in today's market, the importance of focus when it comes to go to market, where many B2B tech or service companies fall short and doing a bit of a step-by-step when it comes to differentiation, the importance of it, and how you can actually put that into play. So with that, welcome to the show, Pep. How are we, sir? We are kicking ass. Thank you for having me. No worries, man. Looking forward to the convo. So as we always do, let's let's get straight into it. We're, we're in 2024 right now. So what is the why is it so important to, to stand out as a, as a B2B tech or service organization? Pep, can't we just, I don't know, join a category that's already saturated, be it CRM, be it calendar booking tools, fire up a new company, stick some ad, set, ad spend behind it, and we, sh- we should be good as gold, right? I wish. I wish. Yeah. Um, so in my company, Winter Week, <clears throat> we, we, you know, companies use us, among other things, to run message tests. And what we see in the data often is if people come across a tool, let's say it's a SaaS tool, it might be an agency, whatever, mm. they always compare it to the category leader. Let's say you're a, a meeting booking tool uh, and they're like, how is this any different from Chili Piper? Or if you're a CRM, it's like, well, how is this different from uh, HubSpot? Because if if you're not clearly different or better or cheaper, they're going to go with the status quo because they have the most mindshare, trust. You know, they're probably not going to go out of business, probably in- integrate with everything you ever need. So HubSpot is a safe bet. So if you're a CRM and there are 500 CRMs, according to G2, if you're, you know, recent entrant to the category... You know, tool number 497, Just you have just no hope of ever succeeding if you are trying to be just like HubSpot. Is that what it is? Is it because us as humans are risk averse? So if we see, uh, like you said, I don't know, calendar booking, let's take Chili Piper, Calendly, et cetera, HubSpot. Is it because we're so familiar with those companies we think, well, they're safe. They're going to do a good job for us. The tool's probably going to work perfectly, even though we might not have invested in in the offer before, might not have even had prior experience of using them. We're just thinking, if I go for another option I've perhaps never heard of, I've just come across now, maybe in some LinkedIn content or an ad or whatever, however I've got served their content. Not sure if I trust these folks yet. Yeah, I mean, there are three things. So number one is that if you are just like everybody else, the odds are very good that they will never find out that you exist to begin with because number one thing that one needs to optimize for in marketing is mental availability which is you know being thought of by category buyers in buying situations i need a crm who are the top three top five that come to mind like who's in my shortlist to even look into so Mm. so that's number one so if you're 
a newcomer in a massive category and I've never heard of you, you are not in my consideration set. I'm not even going to consider you. So that's 99% of that. If I do see your ad or somehow become aware that you exist, of course, a company I've never heard of, I'm going to be skeptical. And it's just not me. There's just humans, you know, skeptical. How old is this company? Also, like if I put all my data in here and a year later, you go out of business. It's a damn hassle to transfer all my data over. Like, you know, so a, a, a new startup has a lot of friction like that, where big enterprises will never go with a one-year-old startup because, you know, you might mm. fall in the next six months. Yep. So there is the, the, the safety aspect. And then if I'm going to venture out and take, you know, maybe take, take a chance on this, on this new company, well, there needs to be a compelling reason. And if it's just like HubSpot, uh, and a, a one-year-old company can never be just like HubSpot because, like, you, you know, like there's so much to build. Like, like, I mean, it, there needs to be an obvious advantage and hopefully something other than price mm. to, to make that leap. So usually what you need to do is you need to not go after the whole market, everybody who needs a CRM. You need to pick a very specific slice of the market who have a very particular set of needs that HubSpot or any other big company is not quite, you know, satisfying yet. Got it. So when we say, and yeah, appreciate the breakdown in terms of, like you said, mental availability, the risk side of things, because if it is a brand new company, it's perhaps been trading six months, 12 months, 18 months, like you said, we're going to think, What's to say they don't crash and burn, run out of cash, don't sell enough mm -hmm. in the next 18 months or so? And then, like you say, um, compelling reason, which is something we talk about quite a lot on the show in terms of kind of the, the tipping point or the motivation to invest in an offer. So when we say standing out, what does that actually mean? Does that mean that our branding is just massively different to if we carry on the calendar booking tool? sort of things that we just look completely different does it mean our message is different is our copy different is the way we go to market different like what does it actually mean in actionable terms right well it could be any of those things that you just said it could be any of those things so what is also true in any saturated category is that true differentiation is actually very hard and we can just take the page out of uh, b2c consumer markets you know think T-shirts, chocolates, uh, microphones, uh, carpets. Like, is there a brand that is better than other brands? No. Like, they're all the same, right? So there's mm -hmm. no difference in terms of product between different brands. Nike, Adidas, it's all, all the same stuff. Yet, some companies are winning and some companies are not winning. So what's the difference there? And it's, it's all about mental availability, being top of mind, um, uh, and how do you achieve that, of course, is, is then uh, being distinct. You know, uh, if you think Nike, swoosh, if you think Adidas, the three stripes, uh, and, you know, Converse, you know, has a particular look. So there's a, there's a distinct branding, let's say. There's a distinct brand asset uh, that somehow it looks different from the others. And then mm. the rest of it is being everywhere with marketing. Now course you can never outspend nike in terms of advertising and all that stuff and the brand power they already have so yep. all odds are stacked against you but essentially 
um, people who uh, study marketing as a science, you know, like uh, Byron Sharp and that school of guys, uh, basically excess share of voice is a guaranteed way to grow. And what, what excess uh, share of voice means that you spend more on advertising uh, than your market share is comparatively um, as uh, when compared to other companies of similar size. So let's say I have 1% of the market, let's say, and my competitor has 1.5% of the market. Now, if I outspend them 3x and reach the consumer three times more, I will outgrow them over time. And this little case study after case study, how this has happened, like Lidl supermarket is a prime example of that and so on. So in B2B, we don't quite think that way. But, you know, if you cannot differentiate with product, which is very hard, it's distinct brand assets and loads of advertising money. Right? You need to outspend your nearest competitors. So that's one thing. Uh, the easier way, of course, is if you have true product differentiation. And, and easier, it's very hard to get to true product differentiation. It's very yeah. hard. But if you have it, it's much easier to market your business. Uh, and when I say it's easier, it's because it's easier to talk about your business and it's easier to remember your business. Uh, you will be noticed more. And uh, case in point is, let's say, my company, Winter. There is no other company in the world that does what we do. Completely unique. It has, of course, its own set of challenges because we don't fit into any particular category. There's no budget line item for buying Winter, which you know creates its own unique problems. Mm. However, we get a shit ton of word of mouth. And we get 100% of the word of mouth for B2B message testing. We get 100% word of mouth uh, for, you know, like um, B2B uh, target customer survey, if anybody wants to do that, because there's literally nowhere, nowhere else to go to. So just being unique will set all these other things in motion. Whereas if you're CRM, just like everybody else, you will get zero word of mouth. That was a slick winter plug, by the way. Um, so with that say, without becoming, do we have to become a new category to actually go down the second route? So you said route one was basically, you, you have to have distinctive brand assets, but you're essentially outspending the existing leaders in the market. Uh, not leaders. Yeah. You need to outspend your nearest competitors oh, and nearest you, you grow your market share little by little until you're big enough to take on the giants. It will take Aha. decades. So you work step uh, you by know. step. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it requires money for sure. A lot of cash. Mm -hmm. Or like you mentioned, we go down the differentiate route. But do we need to then become a new category? Like you said, with, for example, with, with winter message testing mm -hmm. websites, which is not something that exists before you created that category. Do we have to do that ourselves or our own offer? Or is there another route, another way we can go into it? Don't have to. I mean, it, you know, it has its own set of challenges because sure. also like if you're creating a new category, you're evangelizing a problem and a lot of companies, your target customers might not know they have this problem. So you need to sell the idea that mm. they have this problem and you need to make them look at the problem with new eyes. So they think that you're the solution to the problem. They thought it's A, but it's actually B. And that's very hard. Changing people's point of view, changing their mind is very hard takes a lot of time 
And so, uh, and a lot of companies fail at that. So, and of course, the basics is that you need to actually solve a real problem. You cannot create a, a made up problem that doesn't exist. Um, and when it comes to category creation, there's a, it's not like a, uh, creating a category or not, there's a continuum of what, what that means. Mm. So on one hand, it's, it's a form of radical differentiation, meaning that you are nothing like anything else out there. Uh, so this is like the case of winter. We are a radically different tool. Uh, and so category creation is a form of differentiation. The other way is you're creating a new category as in an ecosystem of tools, agency partners, you know, whatever, whatever. So this is like kind of like what Gainsight did with customer success. They, okay. they, uh, they fostered a job title called I'm a customer success person. There's a whole identity, a movement. There are agencies doing that. There are a whole different amount of tools, a conference, you know, like there's a, they're building an ecosystem of category and now it's a real thing customer success it wasn't before so that the gain side way requires way more money way mm. more money you know like and if you if you if you talk to the companies that have done that so i i spoke to um the ceo founder of drift and he yeah. told me like if he had known in advance how hard it's gonna be like their category of conversational marketing uh, in in hindsight, it's like no, it's a bad idea. Don't do it. Right? <laughs> um, and so, so, but the 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 idea of a form of radical differentiation, I think, is a much easier path if you can find a way to be different. Uh, which which, as I said, is hard. Um, what is the middle way? You ask. The middle way is that you find a slice of the market that is either ignored by uh, the bigger players or that have very particular um, needs that are not quite satisfied. And then you say, hey, let's say it's a real estate agents yep. uh, who also need a CRM. Now we are building a CRM for real estate agents who have very particular needs. And now I'm building a product that is perfect for them. I'm sure like real estate agent CRM is actually a massive subcategory. So it's a bad example, but you know, you get, you, you get my point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're talking about taking a very specific segment of the target market and going directly after them rather than trying to go for almost anyone who could use exactly. it. Is that right? And so, so there are like two, two examples here I can give. So this is uh, the Korean car makers, uh, Kia and Hyundai. In the 1990s, they created uh, a category of subcompact cars, like these little, little itty-bitty cars. And um, they started uh, uh, making very cheap cars and nibbling away at the market share of Toyota and Honda and, and so on and so forth while pricing themselves cheaper than Honda Civic and so on. So basically taking away Honda's and, and, and Toyota's least profitable customers. So they didn't fight them. Over time, uh, Hyundai and Kia became bigger and richer. And now, of course, they make every kind of car imaginable, have considerable market share. Uh, like Kia's Telluride SUV was at some point uh, the best-selling SUV in the whole America. So, like, basically, you, you start in a very specific segment where they won't fight you. 
maybe yeah. a least profitable segment of your target um, uh, or of your competitor. And then as you gain a foothold there, you expand mm. out of it slowly and slowly. It's the same thing how I, so my company Winter is three years old. My vision was always up here, what we're going to become a, a platform. You right. cannot a build a platform overnight. It takes many years of building like engineering work. And, and also uh, a platform is a, is a vague and rather poor value prop, you know, like Salesforce is a platform today, but how they started a cloud CRM, same idea. I saw that if we come out as a point solution for message testing in B2B, nobody else was doing it. We were the only one and, uh, and we could gain a toehold in the market, position ourselves as we are point solution tool for this particular problem. Mm. And, and now we're expanding out of it. Now we're becoming more things than that. Not quite yet. We do everything that my, uh, that my vision has, you know, but uh, slowly and slowly we are taking a bigger slice of the market. Interesting. Yeah. And, and that makes sense, right? So we, we're talking about kind of really niching down in the, in the car example that you gave basically Get, picking a super small market that your competitors right now might not give a shit about, so you can That's almost exactly pick right. up their well, pick up their scraps, mm -hmm. slowly nibble away, start acquiring customers, driving some revenue and and ramping it up over time. Exactly right, because one until you're like under ten million in revenue, the big fish, you know, the hotspots of the world, they won't even know you exist. They don't care. They won't fight you because if they were, if you were to take them. Uh, on head on, they would crush you because they have so much more money and brand power and everything. So you kind of want to fly under the radar, you know, case in point in, in the, in the mobile phone, the smartphone wars, LG went for the exact same customer as Samsung, you know, Android right. phones, uh, overlapped exactly. And Samsung was like over my dead body, bitch. And they crushed them. Now LG is mainly uh, like a subcontractor for making parts. They got slaughtered by Samsung. Mm. Yeah, nice example. So what might be quite interesting to make this tangible for our audience is feel free to either give an example of a company, a tech company you're aware, or maybe your own business, Winter, because that might be more fun, of how you went about doing that in the sense that, I, although I suppose yours was a new category, so maybe we could talk about one that's in a, an existing category that stood out as well. Um, mm -hmm. But I'd like to know the thought process of where you came to think, right, this is this is a problem that needs to, needs to be fixed, and this is how I'm actually going to take it to market mm -hmm. um, to give our audience a bit of an idea how how you can put this into play of coming across. All right, there's a problem. This is the the target market I'm going after. This is how I'm going to bring it into fruition. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, you know, traditional entrepreneurship, business building stuff where you stumble upon an unsolved problem that either you experience yourself. So in my case, my other uh, business is CXL, which is like an e-learning business. As I was writing copy for one of the sales pages, um, I was wondering if my ideal customer is reading this sales pitch that I just put together, are they mm. like, oh my God, this is so great. Take my money. Or are they like, this is so boring, like next, like, uh, or what parts were interesting, what parts were boring? I had no idea. Um, and so I started to look for a tool that could tell me. Only thing I found was people with the exact same problem. So I, I basically stumbled upon 
an unsolved problem by solving my own problem. It's very classic, right, in, in, in entrepreneurship. The other way is that you have worked in an industry for a long-ass time. You're a veteran. You've worked in insurance for 20 years. You know exactly how the industry works, and you know the inefficiencies that are going on. Like Companies are losing a lot of money based on this. So maybe there's fraud or whatever. And then you come up with an idea of how to solve it with, through technology or whatever it is. So that's that's another very classic route that uh, you, you see how maybe insurance companies are slapping tools together to you know have a workaround for something, and you, you can build a dedicated tool for it. Yeah. Um, now, is there a, like a one, two, three formula that everybody can replicate here? I mean, I think it's very hard. Also, a thousand books have been written about that, like how to find a problem and start your own business. Um, so if you don't have a problem that you have that's unsolved, if you don't have any intimate industry knowledge uh, where you know that something is could be done better, then, I mean, it's hard. It's, it's hard. I, I'll give you that. So then the, your best bet is like have really distinct uh, branding in terms of your voice, the way you look, uh, the way you present. And when it comes to distinct brand assets, there are like good ones and there are bad ones. So for instance, colors and fonts is a terrible way to be distinct because every single company in the world can choose the same colors and fonts as you, you know, and they do by the millions. So when I uh, launched winter, by the way, I chose the yellow color because I couldn't find, you know, almost any B2B SaaS company that was yellow, yellow and mm. black core combo. Uh, so I thought, oh, that's different. Fast forward three years, so many tens of prominent SaaS companies who have, who are yellow and black, just like us. It's it's just it's it's a very poor defensibility there, uh, you know. So so it cannot be that. It it needs to be more radical than this. Uh, uh, in the book, um, uh, Jenny Romanuk's book about the distinct brand assets. I mean, she says things like mascots, which. In B2B, I haven't really seen anybody pull off successfully, but, you know, like the Gecko and the Geico ads and, and, mm. uh, and, and you know, like... So I'm trying to think of one now, actually, in B2B. Or, or uh, Michelin, uh, the tire dude. Um, um, they have, like, so, so basically nobody else is going to have the same tire guy, right? Um, so that's a very distinct brand asset. Uh, in B2B, I know, like, Mutiny has tried was, to do I was their... thinking of uh, them. And there's a Raccoon. brand called Commodore, right, as well, with a dinosaur, I think they're called, something like that. There's a couple that are trying to break through with, with some, some mascots. They're trying, yeah. So I think it's it's a worthwhile uh, effort. Or Ahrefs, the SEO tool, they, they made their own fonts that nobody could, like, they basically created their own font from scratch to have a distinct look. Uh, you know, that's a way. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, and then, of course... Be fucking everywhere where your where your customers hang out, and the smaller the slice of the market that you're trying to conquer, the better your chances of seemingly appearing everywhere, because you, you cannot afford to do mass marketing, mass advertising. Mm. But if your target segment is 200 companies, you know in B2B you can do that. You can basically you know you go the ABM route. I the the logic here is I cannot spend. Uh, on LinkedIn ads or whatever, um, it's, it's very expensive. But if I know exactly these 200 companies should become my customers, why would you do anything else other than go after these 200 companies? Uh, and then 
You identify all these people who work there. You invite them to lunch. You invite them to create a conference. You can be everywhere for these 200 companies hmm. uh, and look like a giant corporation. That's possible. And then once you dominate these 200, expand out. Any examples of B2B tech or service companies that have done that? Oh, it's hard to, hard for me to know. So, um, so one, one that comes to uh, mind is the customer support for uh, e-commerce companies, Gorgeous. So when Gorgeous launched, uh, Zendesk, uh, which is like the category leader of support help desk software, yep. they were already gi ginormous. Maybe, I don't know if they IPO'd yet, but, uh, but they were enormous already. So Gorgeous came and picked... Uh, that we're going to be help desk for e-commerce specifically, one slice of the market. And and also what they did was they created a, basically a, an ABM, a target list, like we need to sell to these accounts in particular. And they, they went very focused after a particular set of accounts. Uh, you can look up um, their founders and marketing leaders, like talks about that stuff. Uh, this is years old now because now gorgeous is the the category king of that subcategory mm. right uh similar is what clavio did uh, email marketing for e-commerce clavio of course now worth 10 billion dollars or some shit. um no, same idea like they they started in a subcategory because mailchimp was already the category king right and is this like a foolproof idea and like, if we take a step back, so for example, I don't know, we've got some kind of tool. So maybe just because it's in my mind now, calendar software, but we're going for some really niche segment. So I don't know, maybe we're doing it not for the usual like marketers or sales professionals. Maybe we're doing it for, I don't know, construction professionals, let's yeah. say. Uh -huh. um, so we go, all right, bang. I, I've got a bit of experience in the construction sector. I don't think this is a saturated market, but how do we, I guess, validate it? In the sense that, because we can we can say, look, there's only 500. I don't know if there is, but there's 500 targets accounts we've worked out that we're going after mm -hmm. in the construction sector for calendar scheduling software. How do we know that that's going to be a big hit? Or yeah, I mean, drop, or do we just you, have you, to go guns blazing? You won't know in advance, and nothing is ever guaranteed. There's always risk involved. Only thing you can do is you can lower uncertainty and improve your odds. And the way you do this, you, you decide on a, on a market segment to go after, maybe construction. And construction can be massive because look at Procore, um, mm. like billion dollars in revenue, construction software. So there's money to be made there for sure. Uh, so if the macro picture looks good, that there's, you know, there's path to a lot of money there. And let's say the calendar, nobody's built the calendar software for the construction industry. I mean, it starts with regular um, customer development work or target customer research so you need to interview and survey target customers that you're going to build to for and market to to know about their pain points regarding calendaring scheduling meetings uh like maybe they're meeting up with customers like what do they usually want to know and and they have like people driving around their trucks in the field and how does that work and like how does it maybe integrate with whatever ERPs they are using behind the scenes. And so you're, yep. you're gathering intel about uh, how they're doing it right now and what about it is is terrible. So in jobs to be done, basically, um, 
there are two things that you want to find out when when serving interviewing uh, an audience you want to find an important problem so on a scale of one to ten how important is it to you to do x you know schedule appointments and when you know for instance uh, and then the second question is how satisfied are you with your current ways or current options to do so hmm. and what you want to find is high importance it's like eights nines and tens and low satisfaction it's like below six on a, right. on a scale of because if 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 you find a high problem but they're perfectly happy the way they're doing it you can't sell them because they don't have a known perceived problem because that's very and they're important. not motivated enough to do it no exactly like change. if i don't have a problem it's going to be going to be extremely difficult um you know uh snowflake their uh cro the chief revenue officer just recently uh posted on linkedin where if you need to educate the customer about the problem the sales cycle is going to be twenty thousand months if they know they have a problem, you can sell them and get money now. Versus, like, if they don't have a problem they're aware of, it's it's a hard life. So essentially, what we're saying is, interview target potential customers that you think would be the ones that you'd serve with this offer, mm -hmm. and then find out what they're doing to do it now, what what the terrible problem is with how they're doing it, if there actually is one, mm -hmm. and if they say that on a scale of one to ten, like six plus on on annoyance level. And then likewise, how, how bothered they are about actually resolving it at six plus, yeah, then exactly. it might be worth so, digging into. So these are either qualitative interviews, and interviews are slow and hard, or you can do surveys. Uh, surveys are a scale much better, much much cheaper, easier to do, less um, the information quality is lower. Mm. Uh, so you need to do a bigger sample. So with interviews, you know, uh, I want to say 12, 13 interviews is very good already. Uh, okay. with, with a with a target customer survey, you know, want to go for maybe thirty people, um, and then of course the research, the your first round of research should be exploratory. You don't really know what you're going to find out, right? You're just probing, gathering intel, and then you learn things. You have new insights, and you follow it up with a laser targeted survey. Ah, oh, okay, we found this thing, and they do it like this. Let's learn yeah. more about this problem. Because mm. you cannot solve a problem that you do not understand. It's very important that you precisely understand the problem. And I guess only then you can yeah. I guess the good thing about doing this as well is even if your original concept flops, i.e. you think you're gonna build this offer for construction people and you think it's gonna be a an amazing scheduling tool for them, and they actually it turns out it's not a massive problem because you could always ask, Well, what is frustrating you at the moment around of your tech setup or that kind of thing and you could literally get hands-on feedback and if if you're getting like say you interviewed 12 13 people and they all actually say a similar thing is really frustrating you could say well these guys all have this issue we've actually got the tech to build this issue and it turns out it's actually i don't know a segment of their crm or something to do with their emails yeah. or something else you're like i've got insights i didn't expect but i could build something else totally it's a very common startup story it's like you start looking into a problem you discover a much bigger problem it's very common also, mm. you let's say you interview all these people, you 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 paint a, your picture in your head of like what's the problem, and then you have an idea of how to go about solving it. Nothing is guaranteed, right? So no. all this work that you do up front just lowers uncertainty and improves mm. the odds of success. 
So when I went to market with Winter three years ago, I launched MVP. Uh, and I had done probably like 40 interviews and we had people using our, uh, uh, like, um, you know, first mock-up, uh, like a private uh, alpha version and lots of user feedback was in there. So I was very confident in our first set of hypotheses. We launched and within three months, I learned that we were wrong about most things. We were wrong about who the buyer is. And who cares about it? Uh, and um, uh, and and price points, and also the the, the competitive market. Uh, we were just wrong about a bunch of things. However, by taking a product to market, this will speed up your feedback loops like nothing else. Hmm. And so, what happened happened in our case? We had various people uh, come knock on our door. And, and when I say people, these were B2B companies. Because when we first launched, we were, uh, Winter was for four consumer companies, like e-commerce companies, selling to e-commerce. Ah, okay. uh, we were selling to copywriters. We were selling to uh, e-commerce product marketers. And then we learned that copywriters in general have zero authority and no money at all. Uh, they're poor and without power as a terrible audience to sell anything to. And, and two, uh, product marketers at e-commerce companies, when they write a uh, product copy for, an e you know, for a product in an e-commerce store, once the copy is, has been written, oh, these are like jeans and you know, this color and this long and you wear them on Sundays, they never change it again. And I'm generalizing obviously, but on your average e-commerce company, once the copy of a product is written, they never change it. They go off to write the next product copy. And the next one, uh, and changing the way they do things is, you know, impossible uh, you know, path. However, we had B two B companies saying, "Hey, uh, like we sell to product uh, managers. Do you have product managers?" And you know, we said, "No." I mean, but do you want moms ages between twenty and twenty five? Uh, and so, after hearing a lot of like these B two B companies came asking, we had to tell them no. We were like, "Wait a minute! Like these B two B companies." Let's 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 look into this, and can we run a small pilot, try to service them? And so so we did, and then the pilots were successful. And five months after we um, we came to market, we pivoted away from our initial uh, ICP to to B two B, and then the company growth trajectory like completely changed. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good example, and. What did that actually look like when you went when you took winter to market? Mm -hmm. Was it just a case of like you said then the copywriters were just saying, "Well, this is too expensive." Were they saying that kind of stuff? And with the e-commerce managers saying, "Well, we're only going to use you once," um, mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. And how, how what, what was like the pivot point where you said, "Oh, this isn't the right sector. We need to go." Need um, to be. So, I mean, we launched. I think first month we did like 20k of revenue because we like we had a big launch campaign and we were product hump number one and all that stuff. And then the next month we made less money and then less money and then less money and then less money. Yeah, uh, the repeat usage was not there. Customer satisfaction was also kind of like meh. Oh, that's nice, you know. It wasn't anything particularly great. Um, mm. And 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 mostly all the people we were pitching, they they didn't want to buy it. Right. They, uh, so especially the copywriters who we were really thinking is going to be loving it because there there's, hadn't been anything like this. Copywriters were even defensive. Were like, for, since the beginning of mankind, the copywriters got away for free. They wrote a 
piece of copy. And if you didn't like it, that's just your opinion, man. And now we came with data of how the target market perceives what you've written. Yeah. And they were getting slaughtered. Um, and so they hated us. Um, and yeah. And so, and this B2B companies, when, when we ran the pilot, they were extremely thrilled without us asking. They went on Twitter and LinkedIn and posting like glowing reviews. Oh my God, we use this new tool called Winter and blah, 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 blah. And we were like, ooh, look at this. Like these guys get it. They're willing to pay for it and they love it. They're like evangelizing it, you know. So so if you read uh, April Dunford's book, um, obviously awesome for positioning is like what you want to find is like the... Um, uh, she calls it uh, the best fit customers. Best fit customers are they get it, they don't negotiate on the price, and they they um, they you know evangelize it. I've learned that the hard way selling websites and SEO to companies where you're constantly negotiating, they don't see the value. They don't understand it. They don't believe in it. Once I made the transition and thought, well, I'm going to move to this market to, in my case, perhaps establish B2B, um, I don't know, manufacturing companies, some tech companies that already have a marketing leader in place that knows the value of SEO. So I'm instead of trying to go to a CEO that's not familiar with SEO, probably has no intentions to do any kind of inbound marketing to going to a decision maker that is very familiar with it, appreciates the yeah. value of it and is ready to invest in it, has the problem we solve, just flips the game. Absolutely. I mean, I have an agency too, Spira. When we started in 2011, like most agencies, you start serving small businesses uh, and uh, you're cheaper than the big guys because, you know, you have no name and no reputation. And it was the same thing, like smell, selling to small businesses where the buyer is the owner of the company and then hits her money. Oh my God, like they're so stingy and like, and maybe you improve their sales by 10%, but it's only a, you know, 200,000 a year business. So 10% is fucking nothing. Uh, whereas you work with a company that does hundred million a year, you improve their sales by 10%. We're talking lots of Lamborghinis here. So they're extremely ecstatic about a 10% improvement. Right. Uh, and so over time we went way up market and we started charging 400 bucks a month. Uh, retainer with our agency now it's twenty thousand a month and i mean the service what we offer also has evolved obviously but it's it's a lot of it is just selling to a bigger business yeah yeah i've been i've been in the exact same boat the exact same boat so understand that um cool man i want to just one thing taking a couple steps back so we've covered some good stuff we've talked about kind of finding a slice of the market that's ignored by your the big players or your co closest competitor. And we talked about going kind of super small, super niche, even if that's only 200 organizations, and then finding out perhaps where those prospects hang out and how you can then essentially be everywhere because that target market's small. It means you don't need to invest a ton of cash. Any ways that you've done or that you've seen done? I know you mentioned Product Hunt just now. Um, of kind of if we are going after a smaller market of how you can quite easily get in front of them, perhaps with not a ton of cash, maybe more resource. Yeah, uh, a very smart play here is a content play. You go create content with them. If it's 200 companies, you launch a podcast, you don't give a shit about whether anybody even listens to a single episode. It doesn't matter at all. You get 
people from all of these 200 people, uh, companies, as guests to talk about whatever the thing is. Uh, and, and the podcast is a way for you to, A, you get to know the person a little bit, and you get on their radar that mm. you exist for a, for a new company. The fact the target market knows that you exist is huge. It's like 80% of the results is just that. And it doesn't need to be podcast. You can do virtual events where you have 20 of them at once. They're delivering sessions. You don't care if anybody attends. It's a bonus. Mainly you're there because uh, like, hey, buy my product versus, hey, I want to feature you in my conference. There's a very different value proposition. Right. right. So you start with something, uh, you know, I call it co-creating content in whatever yep. forms. Uh, that's, that's the easiest way to get on the radar and start relationship building. That's a great example. Yeah, yeah. I've actually done that with this podcast over, mm -hmm. over time. We actually kind of picked out marketing leaders. It wasn't so much that we just wanted to get them on and pitch them. It was more like I, I quite often say to guests up front, like, if you're going to come on the show, I'm going to challenge you on marketing. I'm not just going to take your answer as gospel. Mm -hmm. if, I, if I think something surface level, I'm going to dig into it. So I advise you listen to some past episodes before you come on. But like, like you said, that's a really good play, especially if you've got a small target market, because like you mentioned, most people are humbled if you ask them to come on a video show or a podcast show or an episode mm -hmm. or a webinar. So 99% of the time people jump at the chance to be interviewed and share how great they are. Well, it really depends on the target market. I've, uh, in my experiments also, I've had a lot of um, people who were um, afraid. They just didn't want Well, that's a good point, actually. I suppose I'm talking about MarTech, but yeah, if I flip that to another industry, that's actually a really good point. So, uh, you know, my, my, the two sources of friction that I've experienced is like, one is like, well, I have nothing to say. Well, I'm poor little me, you know? Um, <laughs> and, and, and second is like, I cannot share anything about my company. I need to like, it's a, it's a giant corporation. Like, I mean, I don't know if the like, legal would approve and, you know, it's too complicated. I'd rather not come. Um, so, which in the SMB's case wouldn't be a, an issue. They don't have legals and the, the chain of command is, is not, you know, 10 levels of hierarchy. That's, yeah, that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that. Yeah, especially some industries, I'm thinking of it from a kind of marketing tech lens, but I suppose some industries that perhaps aren't as frequent on podcasts as well, mm -hmm. you might get that pushback. So it might be more of a nurturing thing and holding them by hand. But there are always ways. There are always ways. So, for instance, I know in cyber cybersecurity, Mm. which is a huge, huge market. Uh, and uh, the buyer there is the chief security officer and every uh, information security officer. Everybody wants to sell them. You throw, you know, events and, mm. and you want them to attend. They will not attend, you know, like, and they're, they're very marketing averse. They're like Redditors, you know, they're like nerds. <laughs> uh, they hate marketing and sales. Now, of course, they do have legit problems that maybe yeah. your thing solves for them. But like to get in front of them. So what I know from like selling to cyber uh, security leaders is that you do you do like dinners, but you you as a vendor, you're not the, the host. You find an industry influencer that the chief security officers love, trust, know, and that person is organizing the dinner. You're just footing the bill and also attending that person's dinner. So like you go in a roundabout way. Hmm. Well, I guess that, yeah, that, that makes it a lot more complex, doesn't it? Actually working out how these folks like to, I don't know whether socialize is the right word, but mm -hmm. I guess get trusted industry information. 
and where they'd be willing to yep. sit down. Absolutely. And do that, and that, that is, again, communicating the importance of target customer research. The question of where you buy and how you buy. So, for instance, a couple of months ago, I surveyed maybe it was 100 B2B SaaS CMOs, CMOs of like 500 plus companies, like basically you're looking to, you know, change up your tech stack and replace a tool by a new tool. Like what is your starting point of uh, where you're going to look? And you know what it was? It was, I'm going to call up my friend CMO. It was very peer to peer. Mm. They're not going to G2. They're not Googling shit. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. They're asking their friends essentially. And so, if you think about that, that's how they start. Okay, well, what's my way in? So strategies, where to play and how to win. Okay, where to play? I need CMOs to refer me. Uh, and it needs to be a CMO that other CMOs look up to and trust and like and know. So maybe there's an influencer marketing play here. Maybe I can buy my way in there if I can afford to or and if they're sellable and everybody mostly is. And yeah. Sure. All starts with customer research. That's, that's right. Uh, and not serving your existing customers. Well, that's half of it. The other side of the coin is people who maybe don't even know you exist, but you want to sell too. You want to serve those people. And like that's where I've made a mistake as well. Because like you say, your existing customers are already going to have biases as well. Because they probably know, like, and trust you. And they, they, they're they going to say what you want them to hear. All that kind of stuff. That's right. Exactly right. Cool, man. Well, look, appreciate the conversation. I think we've covered some good ground on all things differentiation. We've taken a slightly different angle to it than I, I anticipated originally, but really enjoyed the show and appreciate you candidly sharing your insights on your own company, others, and, and what's worked for clients and such. It's been an enjoyable chat. We'll have to get you on for a round two at some stage in the future if you're game. Let's do it. And Let's talk about dunning emails. Oh, dude, t- tell, tell the audience, because no one's ever said this to me, and I don't know if you, the end part of it was gold as well. Can you remember what you said to me when I reached out to Pep to come on well, the show? Yeah, you reached out to me on LinkedIn and uh, I said something like, "Like, why on earth aren't you in the Dunning emails business? Yeah, well, I think you actually said, why aren't you in the Dunn business? It's such a waste. But the waste, because obviously a Dunn is where you go for a, a Dunn for shit. Um, and the waste, like the pun at the end of it, I was literally in stitches, man. I think it's one of those ones where you had to be there, but the, the pun was on point. So Pep's humor game is on point. But with that said, Pep, enjoyed the chat. Thanks for sharing your knowledge. Please do share how everyone tuning in can learn more, connect with you, or, or do some business with yourself or your companies. Yeah, basically, give me a follow on LinkedIn or Twitter, X, um, nobody else by my name. Uh, and then, yeah, that's a good starting point. Top man. What about your upcoming conference this Summer. Absolutely. If you are in B2B SaaS and you're in marketing, uh, we're throwing a two-day event called Spring with a Y in Austin, Texas, April 9 and 10. It's not keynote after keynote in a hotel ballroom. It's actually a brewery. And it's two days of hanging out with peers and with organized roundtable discussions on, hey, what's working for you right now? And then like, how are you creating demand and things like that, uh, all while drinking beer. Sounds perfect. And Pep's already agreed that I'm going to be speaking ahead of Chris Walker. So we've, we've signed the deal then. I can't wait to get stuck in. Um, cheers, Pep. Thanks once again for coming on the show, man. Enjoy the chat. All righty. Take care, man. Cheers, dude. And as always, if you enjoyed today's episode, a rating or review on your podcast channel goes a long way. Um, and if you want to grab 
the weekday newsletter we send out. Check out more podcasts or apply to work with us. Head over to samdunning.org. Thanks once again for tuning in. Catch you on the next one.